For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks so much for being with us at Debate Talk for folks here. And also, in particular, if you would, Manifold, our sponsor for the portable, is the online play Cool website. I use Don't risk your actual money. Check their link out in the description box and jump into the page. But just want to post things. Go VIP. As well as, we're going to jump into the opening statement. I want to say thanks so much for being with us, David and Isa. Isa, we're going to get over to you for your 20 minute opening statement. The floor is all yours. Okay. Well, I want to thank my colleague here, Dr. David Wood. Um, so I will be taking the affirmative position is the Prophet Muhammad or the Prophet of Islam. And I'm going to use this once. I'm not going to say it throughout the presentation because I think it gets old. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which means like peace and blessings be upon him. Um, is he a true prophet? Where can we find the truth in this space? And it's me. It's my name. So here we go. Let's begin. So let's start off. What is a true prophet? That's the whole crux of what we're talking about. What's a prophet? Like, what's a true prophet? How does it work? So when we think of prophecy, we can think of someone like Nostradamus, where you can get kind of this foretelling of the, of the future. That can be a definition of what a prophet is, is someone who can foretell the future. And with the kind of prophets that I believe that we are going to be looking at today, that is an aspect that these prophets share in common, that there is an element of foretelling the future. However, we're looking at the kind of the archetype of the Hebrew prophet. This is how, in, my, in the defense that I'm going with, the prophet, a true prophet is a prophet who fits under the archetype of the Hebrew prophet. So what is this, who is this uh, Hebrew prophet? It's one who delivers messages that are believed to come from God. Just this is kind of a generic definition so we can kind of understand what our terms are. Okay, so we're going to look kind of how, first we're going to also kind of shift into what is an Islamic prophet in conjunction with this Hebrew prophet. So there are two kinds of constructs within the Islamic tradition. You have the Nabi and you have the Rasul. So Nabi is actually, we can find that right straight from Hebrew, which is Navi, which is prophet. 
um, and a Rasul is a messenger. So in Islamic tradition, you have the prophets, um, similar to the corpus of the Tanakh, the Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, the, the, the whole corpus of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, the, there are like minor prophets and major prophets. Um, so that, that archetype fits within the Islamic tradition as well, where you have kind of minor prophets and major prophets. So the Rasul fits sort of as the major prophet. So uh, Christ, uh, you know, you could say Isa or Jesus Christ, or uh, Yeshua or Yehoshua, um, is considered one of these major prophets. Moses considered, or Musa, Moshe, um, or Islam, or you know, of blessed memory, is considered a major prophet, and the prophet uh, of Islam is considered a major prophet. So, something that we see with the prophetic archetype is we see Wahi and Ilham. Um, and below, this is, there's, this is kind of, the message is an interesting film that folks should probably see. It's sort of like uh, an Islamic Ten Commandments, in a sense. It's a big, epic film. Um, it has its interesting take on the narrative, but you know, um, there's actually an Arabic and an English version of it. But you have Wahi and Ilham. Wahi is inspiration, and people can have that across the board, and spiritual figures may have that, and Ilham is revelation, which is what prophets receive from God. So what are the traits of these prophets? Uh, they are meant to be truthful. They are not seeking material gain. There is a divine call to action. Um, and there's an obeying to the call to action. They function as mediators, and um, usually within this archetype, you see that the, the prophets are persecuted. We can see that like with the prophet uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Um, a lot of these, you know, all these prophets usually face, these, the prof prophetic archetype faces a, a degree of persecution as being a part of that, and there's a focus on prayer. And depending on your interpretation of the tradition, you can see all of this within the prophet of Islam. There are other views which exist as well. I, I'm okay with the pluralistic space that there are other views that will not see this point of view, but this is a perspective and view that exists. Um, okay. So looking at the prophetic connection between the Hebrew prophets and the, uh, and the prophet of Islam, there's 124,000 prophets that are mentioned within the Islamic tradition, and 25 are mentioned within the Quran. There, are, uh, if we look at the Tanakh, you have, which, um, sorry, I didn't explain that perfectly. It's the way that how Christians would call the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish community would call the Hebrew Scriptures, which is the Torah, which is the five books, um, uh, you, uh, the Nevim, which is the prophets, and Ketuvim, which is the words. So we see 48 prophets and seven prophetesses within the Hebrew teaching. So, this is, we see that there's this narrative of multiple prophets throughout uh, the tradition. Okay, so we, looking at the Hebrew prophetic timeline, we can see that there is, uh, there's this kind of very long lineage of pro the prophetic tradition and there are kings. This uh, map does not show us the judges. The judges are, uh, can be a part of that uh, continuum as well. So. That's something to consider. So it's interesting because we have to consider storytelling and the themes of stories and narratives. 
So within the Islamic narrative, you're going to have multiple narratives within the history. There isn't just necessarily a linear narrative. So I'm showcasing within several of these spaces that there are different things that are focused upon and how these things are viewed upon um, can vary. So we, you, we start off at 570, and uh, you get the revelation at 610. The prophet of Islam is born in 570. And then the other map we can see uh, starts with the elephant. Um, there's a lot of different ways of how this continuum in this narrative comes. Like It's hard to really convey all of it, so I'm kind of giving a snapshot here that we can see of what this uh, prophetic narrative is of the prophet of Islam. Um, so the situation, how does this fit within the archetypal narrative that we see within the Hebrew prophets is that he, similar to a, uh, the prophet Abraham, kind of gets clicked into this, the tradition of monotheism, uh, is, you know, comes to the mountain of Hira, you know, he goes out and is like a, a renunciate from the society, um, and he meditates there, and a revelation comes, and it's this propagation of teaching monotheism. This same kind of continuum we can see throughout the other prophetic traditions. I think the prophet Jeremiah is another perfect example of that. So this is something that we can see that fits this um, continuum. Okay, so this, so looking at different timelines, we see different focuses. That's the point of how we do narrative and story-based uh, telling in an engagement with all of these spaces. Okay, when we think of the prophetic continuation, what does this look like? The prophetic continuation is, uh, it's an interesting thing because it's very hard to tie down timelines in the situation because we're dealing with a spiritual history as opposed to a lateral historical narrative. Um, some folks like to use a literal lateral historical narrative. I think that's totally fine, but this, and this is kind of an archetypal space of looking at that. Um, and we could see throughout this type of uh, continuum of how we get from Adam to the prophet of Islam. So that's important to consider. So, we as humans tell many stories. So this is, the important, this is the important crux of this situation. When we're looking at the Prophet of Islam, we're gonna see many different stories of who this person is. We're gonna see a story that could be very, in our modern day society, could be very highly charged, very negative to modern audiences. But we also could see a story of a narrative of a protagonist who is very positive and noble, and a lot of Muslims within the Muslim community hold to this archetypal figure, to this prophetic character within their lives. Um, the question is, what, what makes someone a true prophet? What is truth in this space? How do we view what that looks like? And what I would say is, does this connect and have a continuation with the Hebrew prophetic narrative? And from what has been engaged right now, that seems to be the that, seem, that can be an argument that can be presented, that this is a space that can exist. And this is very important for those who are a part of the Muslim community and uh, take that uh, position of faith. So I think we can take a position of yes and instead of yes but. So that's the important thing to consider. Thank you very much. 
We'll kick it over to David for his opening as well. Thanks for being with us, David. The floor is all yours. While we're waiting, I want to give you a reminder, if you're watching online, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. We have plenty more debates coming up today at DebateCon 4. All yours, David. Thank you, James, for setting up this debate. Um, most of the popular Dawa arguments from 20 years ago, including the argument from perfect preservation and the argument from uh, scientific miracles, are now being abandoned. Even the Dawa guys are finally admitting that these um, arguments were, in their words, total nonsense. So all of the work of the previous generation of Muslim apologists, people like Dr. Naik and Ahmed Didat, is being destroyed by a new generation of, uh, of Dawah guys. But this raises an important question. If the previous generation's arguments for Muhammad were bogus, why should we believe in Muhammad now? Are there new arguments? So I guess the only way to find out is to ask our Muslim friends. So thank you, Isa, for being here to explain your reasons for believing in Muhammad. One might think that the prophethood of Muhammad would be the go-to topic for Muslim apologists everywhere. After all, if Muslims could show that Muhammad was actually a prophet, the final prophet, that would settle a lot of other debates. Islam would be true. Muslims would win. Ball game. So it's odd that Muslim apologists generally won't go near this topic. Isa is one of the rare exceptions, so hats off to him. Uh, now, Isa's approach to the prophethood of Muhammad is a bit different from what we're used to from the Dawah crowd. So here in my opening statement, I'm going to share my general thoughts on this issue, and then we can take a closer look at uh, Isa's perspective in the uh, remainder. Many people down through history have claimed to be prophets. Many people in the world today claim to be prophets. But we can't accept what someone says just because he claims to be a prophet. We need to test people to see whether their message, uh, messages really come from God. And that is, uh, since Isa's appealing to the Hebrew tradition, that is uh, a recurring theme, that there are lots of false prophets and that you need to test these. You need to test people who claim to be prophets. So if someone comes with a revelation, there are three main possibilities that we should consider. First, the revelation might have a purely human origin. People sometimes say they're getting messages from God when the messages are really coming from their own minds. It doesn't mean that they're intentionally inventing revelations. They could. Uh, but they might really believe that they're prophets, and yet the true origin of their messages may go no further than their own imaginations, their own desires, their own beliefs. Second, the revelation might have a demonic origin. Christians and Muslims believe in some sort of demonic forces, and we agree that demons can influence people, so we would agree that a person who claims to be a prophet could be getting revelations from some demonic realm. Third, the revelation may actually come from God, in which case we should believe it. So, for examining the claims of Muhammad, we should ask, did these claims come from Muhammad's own mind? Did they come from some demonic source? Did they come from God? Let's take a closer look at the possibilities. In many ways, Islam looks like a religion that came from the mind of a 7th century caravan trader. 
Uh, Muslims believe that the message of Islam came down from heaven, but we can find all the building blocks of the religion in the teachings and practices of the people around Mecca during the time of Muhammad. Uh, Jewish monotheism had spread to Arabia. Jews had also written uh, tons of stories that were recorded in the Talmud and other sources. Many of these stories were based on biblical characters, but they were later fabrications. Stories about Abraham being delivered from a fire or a bird teaching Cain how to bury his brother, or Solomon talking to animals. Uh, these stories are now in the Quran. There were also various teachings about Jesus and Mary that certain odd Christian groups believed, things like Jesus speaking at birth, Jesus giving life to slave birds, Mary giving birth under a palm tree, and so on. No historian on the planet believes that these late apocryphal stories are authentic, but we know that some Christians in Arabia were teaching these things, and these stories ended up in the Quran. The Sabians, who are mentioned in the Quran, prayed before dawn, before noon, afternoon, before sunset, and after sunset. They prayed at two additional times, but five of their prayer times are now part of Islam. Some of the Persians believed that after death, a paradise, sensual delights awaited them, complete with Hori, the uh, virgins of the garden, became the Muslim view of paradise. And let's not forget about the pagans of Arabia. The pagans of Arabia, the polytheists, performed ablutions, these ceremonial washings. They took the pilgrimage to Mecca and circled the Kaaba. They kissed the black stone. These were all pagan practices that were very dear to the polytheistic, idol-worshipping Arabs. Now they're part of Islam. The point I'm trying to make is that if you take Jewish monotheism and some fictitious tales from Jewish sources, the false and sometimes heretical stories of certain Christian groups, the Persian view of the afterlife, some of the prayer times of the Sabians and the practices of the pagans, and you roll it all up into a ball, you get Islam. This doesn't look like something that came down from heaven. This is exactly the sort of religion we would expect to arise in 7th century Mecca. But we have other reasons to believe that the true origin of Islam was the mind of Muhammad. Consider, for instance, Muhammad's self-serving revelations. Only time to look at a couple, but there are a lot more of these. Surah 4, verse 3 says that Muslims can marry up to four women. But we know from history that Muhammad had a lot more than four wives. Kabadi says that Muhammad consummated marriages with 13 women. We also know from references in Bukhari that Muhammad had at least nine wives at one time. So, if the Quran says that men are allowed to have no more than four wives, why did Muhammad get more? Well, Muhammad received another revelation, Surah 3350, which gave him, and him only, special moral privileges. I'll just say that it looks awfully suspicious when a prophet receives revelations that give him more sexual partners than anyone else. Look at another revelation. Muhammad had an adopted son named Zayd, it was called Zayd bin Muhammad, Zayd, son of Muhammad. One day, Muhammad went to visit him and was greeted by Zayd's wife, Zainab, who was one of the most beautiful women in Arabia and who was wearing very little clothing at the time, let's say. Here's what happened, according to Tabari. She jumped up in haste and excited the admiration of the messenger of God, so that he turned away murmuring something that could scarcely be understood. However, he did say overtly, Glory be to God the Almighty. Glory be to God who causes hearts to turn. 
When Zayd found out that Muhammad was attracted to his wife, he decided to divorce her so that Muhammad could have him, uh, could have her. Uh, Muhammad, of course, uh, was worried about what people might think, so he said, no, keep your wife. But by that time, Zainab had found out that Muhammad was attracted to her, and so she began despising her husband and Zayd, wanting to give his adopted father whatever he desired, divorced his wife. Muhammad was still worried about what people might think if he married Zainab, again, the wife of his own adopted son, but then he began receiving revelations to justify the marriage. He received Surah 33. Verse 37, for instance, which says that Muhammad had to marry Zainab so that other Muslims would understand that it's okay to marry the wives of your adopted son. Here again, Muhammad's revelations seem a little too convenient, and this happened over and over again. Muhammad got caught having sex with his slave girl, married the cop, in his wife Hafsa's bed. He was allowed to have sex with his slave girls, but his wives were upset that he was doing it in their bed. So they kept complaining until he swore by Allah that he would never have sex with that slave girl again. Swore by Allah, took a note. Then he suddenly received a revelation, opening verses of Surah 66, telling him that he could break that oath and go back to having sex with his slave girl. The Quran is supposed to be the eternal speech of Allah, and yet parts of it have way more to do with satisfying Muhammad's desires than with guiding humanity. Interestingly, Aisha herself noticed this. Aisha, as you may know, was Muhammad's child bride. Muhammad had a dream telling him to marry her when she was six. Years later, Muhammad received one of his morally convenient revelations, and Aisha said to him, I feel that your Lord hastens in fulfilling your wishes and desires. Anytime you want something, you get it. Indeed. Would we expect the creator of the universe to have nothing better to do than sit around handing out revelations to satisfy Muhammad's desires? Of course not. This seems entirely human. And there are other aspects of Muhammad's teachings that seem all too human. Things that are attributed to him often seem like they were composed for five-year-olds. The prophet said, if any one of you rouses from sleep and performs the ablution, he should wash his nose by putting water in it and then blowing it out thrice because Satan has stayed in the upper part of his nose all night. A man was mentioned before the prophet, and he was told that he kept on sleeping till morning and did not get up for prayer. The prophet said, Satan urinated in his ears. Allah's messenger said, when the call for Salat is made, Satan takes to his heels, passing wind, so that he may not hear the Adan. And there's everyone's personal favorite, the eyes are the leather strap of the anus. This one, fortunately, was not written for five-year-olds. If you want to know what Muhammad meant by this, you can ask me during the Q&A. I had to do a little research to figure this one out. So, Satan pees in your ears. Satan hides in your nose. Satan passes gas during the call to prayer. There are tons and tons of these things. But who cares? What's the, what, what, what's the problem I'm pointing out? Well, the problem with these passages is that Muhammad bragged about his supernatural eloquence. His sayings supposedly contain some sort of internal confirmation of their divine origin. According to Muhammad, when he says, the eyes are the leather strap of the anus, it's some kind of evidence that he's a prophet. Perhaps I'm missing something here, but this doesn't sound like wisdom from God. It doesn't sound like the work of Satan. It sounds like the silly folk teachings of someone living in 7th century Arabia. And when we combine this with the fact that Muhammad plagiarized practically everything in his religion from Judaism, Christianity, and so on, 
and with the fact that some of Muhammad's revelations have no purpose other than satisfying his desires, we can't help but think that these revelations are all too human. So we have good reasons to think that the origin of Muhammad's message was his own 7th century Meccan mind, but we should also look to see if there might be something darker involved. And here we find plenty of evidence that something beyond Muhammad was at work in some of his teachings. We know from Muslim sources that when Muhammad began receiving revelations, his first impression was that they were demonic. That was his first impression. He thought he was possessed. We also know that after his experience in the cave, he became suicidal and tried to hurl himself off a cliff. We know that it was his wife Khadija and her cousin Wadika who persuaded him that he wasn't possessed, he was a prophet of God. Now, what happened to Muhammad in that cave when the Quran started coming to him? I don't know, I wasn't there. But, according to the sources, when Muhammad ran out of that cave, terrified, depressed, and suicidal, he was convinced that he had encountered a demon. Sometimes your first impression is the correct one. According to our earliest Muslim sources, Muhammad delivered a revelation from the devil, infamous satanic verses. Here's what happened. When Muhammad was preaching in Mecca, he didn't win very many converts, but he wanted his countrymen to accept Islam, and he was hoping to receive a revelation that would help them convert. Then one day he got the revelation he was looking for. It said, Have you thought of Alat and Alusa and Manat the third, the other? These are the exalted cranes whose intercession is approved. This is what Surah 53 originally said. It said that in addition to Allah, there are three goddesses that Muslims can pray to. Allah, Alusa, and Manat. Call them cranes because the idea is that they're like birds who can carry your prayers up to Allah. So they, they intercede for you. Muhammad delivered these verses to his followers. He bowed down in honor of them, and his followers bowed down with him. But a little later, Muhammad came back and proclaimed, the devil made me do it. He said that the satanic verses, which he had delivered as part of the Quran, weren't really from God, they were from Satan. And he replaced them with the words we find in the Quran today. So, when you read Surah 53, keep in mind that it originally promoted polytheism and prayers to pagan goddesses, and that Muhammad couldn't tell the difference between a revelation from God and a revelation from Satan, even according to Muslim sources. Pretty disturbing, which is why Muslim scholars tend to keep this a secret. But there's more. We know from multiple references in Bukhari and other sources that Muhammad was the victim of black magic that made him delusional and gave him false beliefs. According to the story, one of the Jews stole Muhammad's hairbrush and used it to cast a spell on him. The spell lasted somewhere between six months and two years. So God's last and greatest prophet could be driven temporarily insane by a magician? Could demonic powers have been at work in Muhammad's teaching? Muhammad's first impression of his revelations was that they were demonic. Early Muslim sources report that Muhammad delivered a revelation from the devil. A magician could give Muhammad delusional thoughts and false beliefs simply by getting a hair from his hairbrush. I find it simply shocking that there are Muslims who see no problem here. History is filled with people claiming to speak for God and their messages very often contradict one another. Most of these people have to be false prophets. So who are we going to listen to? 
I don't know about you, but as soon as I hear that a guy thinks he's demon-possessed and that he delivers revelations from Satan and that people can cast spells on him, I find it pretty difficult to take his claim seriously. So we have reasons to think that some of Muhammad's revelations have a purely human origin. We have reasons to think that something more sinister may have been at work in Muhammad's revelations. The question before us now is whether we have any good reason to think that Islam is from God. Is there evidence that outweighs the difficulties we've seen? What evidence has Isa given us? Um, well, we can, we can talk about this in the remainder of the debate, but um, as far as what I jotted down, uh, he, he refers to traits of a prophet, uh, someone who's truthful, someone who doesn't seek material gain, has a divine call to action, and so on. Um, I think you could point out these traits in a lot of false prophets as well, so I'm going to need uh, a little more than that. And even if you have reasons to think that they're not being truthful and so on, their followers are generally going to say, no, they're being truthful. So uh, we need a little bit more on how to distinguish someone who uh, simply claims to have these traits versus someone who actually has them. And uh, Isa says that Muhammad is the sort of continuation of the Hebrew prophetic narrative. And that there's, uh, that's, that's partly correct in that you, you have a lot of similarities um, in doctrine and practice between Muhammad and uh, the Old Testament prophets, let's say. Uh, but Muhammad is claiming to be a continuation of it. So Muhammad comes along. You can see why some Jews and Christians might have been happy, especially at first. Like, like I mentioned, uh, I mentioned uh, Waraka. Waraka is a, some sort of uh, odd Christian back then, and he thinks it's great when Muhammad comes along and starts telling the polytheists of Arabia that they should believe in one God and that they should believe in the Old Testament prophets. And so you can see why, why people might be persuaded by this and why Isa might uh, think it's important to point out that Muhammad is a, a continuation of the Hebrew prophetic narrative the problem is that Muhammad kept talking and talking and talking. So he's contradicting the Hebrew prophets left and right. He's contradicting uh, Jesus over and over again while constantly claiming that their scriptures affirm him as a prophet, even though those scriptures uh, contradict his core teachings. I'd be happy to go through uh, plenty of that. So uh, I, I just think it's, uh, it's going, you're going to need a little more than saying he's the continuation of these prophets. Joseph Smith would claim to be a continuation of these prophets. Lots of false prophets would say, hey, I'm part of that prophetic line. Uh, in fact, if you're, if you're almost any false prophet uh, in most parts of the world today, you're going to be claiming to be the successor of these uh, earlier prophets. So you're going to need more than that. And so putting all of this together, we have good evidence that some of Muhammad's revelations had a purely human origin. Islam just looks like a mixture of apocryphal Jewish teachings, apocryphal Christian teachings, and pagan practices. It looks like something that came from 7th century Arabia. Many of Muhammad's revelations have no purpose other than satisfying his desires. Aisha herself noticed this. I'm not inventing this. Uh, at the same time, we've seen that maybe there's something darker at work in the formation of Islam. Muhammad's first impression of his revelations was that they were demonic. This, they caused him to be suicidal. Muhammad delivered a revelation from One the devil, left. not according to me, according to Muslim sources. And according to Muslim sources, he was a victim of black magic. Not the sort of guy I trust as the final authority in matters of religion. What evidence do we have that outweighs these difficulties? Well, simply claiming that he has the characteristics of a, of a prophet and that he, the continuation of this prophetic line isn't going to do it because that's what almost any prophet uh, nowadays would say. 
And so uh, Issa's a very nice guy. He's a much nicer, nicer guy than uh, almost, every, almost anyone I've ever debated. Uh, but Issa being a nice guy is, is not a good reason to believe Muhammad. <laughs> All right. We're going to kick it open to a 12-minute rebuttal period. We're going to give it over to Issa. The floor is yours. Uh, 12 minutes. to some what we just heard there. Well, thank you, David. That was definitely intense. There's a lot of things to cover there. Um, okay. So going to try to cover all of these aspects as best I can. Um, so in the beginning of um, David's uh, position, uh, we heard about the arguments of older Dawagandis or Dai, you know, uh, people who are propagating Islam, which is an interesting thing because in Islamic tradition you have different kinds of movements. You have folks who are kind of taking that movement and you have people who may be doing more inner work but it's interesting that there are, there's a community, and so the community who is trying to propagate have a certain kind of narrative of what they're trying to get at. Um, I don't think that that is where I'm going to go with it. Um, we can see the situation of that, how the newer generation takes a different position than the older generation. I do think it's interesting to consider the points of scientific theory. I, I, I have find a lot of problematic elements of trying to connect religion to science. I, I don't think that works, and that's why I would never debate is religion scientific. I think they just operate in different operating systems, so I, I don't think that those two things work. Um, there's a new approach. I'd love to hear more about the new approaches of the folks who are taking that position. Um, and so, and also, David brought up the point that there are a lot of people who claim to be prophets. How do we know what's a true prophet and what's not a true prophet? And I think that's a really difficult question. How do, how do we say, is the Mormon prophet not a prophet? You know, to Mormon folks, he is a prophet. And to people who are not Mormon, he's not a prophet. So this is an, this is an interesting question. Um, so... I would kind of take the position that the prophet of Islam is a prophet to Muslim folks. It's hard to say, again, if you're taking kind of a pluralistic position, it's going to be difficult to say, hey, um, there's this absolute truth. And I think that the people who take that position, the Dawagandists or the uh, Dais, uh, their folk, this kind of position is that they are exceptionally correct. I'm not taking that position. I don't, I don't think that that... I don't even see the, the val validity of that. A lot of folks who take that position have never even explored other alternative positions. So I don't even see how one could take that position, but it's an interesting thing to consider. The next thing is the three possibilities, human origin, demonic origin, and may actually come from God. Um, yeah, this is, this is interesting. I would say there's probably lots of other <laughs> origins too, but going to these kind of elements, taking these three, uh, elements that a person basically constructed religion, they just made it up, um, it's possible. Um, I've, it's, it's an interesting thing. How do, what is the litmus test? That's an interesting question. What is the litmus test to prove any of these situations? And I think you're going to have multiple litmus, litmus or lit, litmus, litmus I tests, um, multiple kinds of tests that you could do. And depending on what your framework is and what your, you know, cosmology, ontology, all of these types of frameworks you use, you may come with different um, positions on it. Um, it would be interesting, how, what, what would be our litmus test of trying to prove these situations? Is it self-serving? 
Well, this is interesting because the narratives that we've heard from um, David are really kind of are more traditional or your Sunni narratives, which is your traditional kind of hadith, which there's like 30,000 hadith. There's so many. The hadith corpus is insurmountable, um, and there's some repetitions within, and the system in of itself is um, based on transmission. We don't necessarily know about veracity of information within the hadith tradition, but you know, if this is an important framework for folks, you know, I say have that for the folks who utilize that framework. Um, so you have the the hadith tradition, and that's primarily where most of our kind of conceptions of all of these arguments are coming from. And that's that's the difficulty. It's a very difficult thing to kind of look at. Um, another element is who were the folks in ancient Arabia. This is another difficult situation. I done research in this actually the ancient hebrews i did a whole like research element of was gordon newby has a whole book on the jews of arabia and it's very complex it's very difficult to know how these jews are because even if we look at ancient hebrew traditions let's say if we look at the first century of jews or israelites hebrews whatever term we want to use we see that um, there were different kinds of narratives you have the sadducum or the sadducee position the pharisaic position or um, the Purushic, Purushim position, um, and the Pharisaic position kind of is the, the most position that Jewish people have to, to this day. It's interesting, there, there's these interesting narratives. What is meant in the Quran by what is a Jew? I think this is an interesting question to ask. What are these archetypes? So what I would present is that the Quran is a spiritual text as opposed to a literal historical a text that is you know narrative-based. And I think that's how we should look at any spiritual text is that we look at them as spiritual texts and try to understand them through that lens. If we want to take the archetype of the historical narrative, we can do that as well, but I think it's important to try to place ourselves in the way that others think. Um, also, we have to look at our modern state of affairs. Um, we live in a predominantly, kind of the ethos that we live in predominantly now is a Protestant Christian lens. So we're a lot of folks are influenced by this lens. So Muslims are also influenced by this lens. So it's interesting because I've, I've heard with, um, from conversations with Dr. Wood where he uh, engages, um, engages other folks, there's this point that they're like, well, we believe in the Torah and we believe in the Gospels, but now they're no longer relevant, um, which is a really interesting position to take because if you take that position, you face a whole theological crisis. You could take a spiritual perspective saying, these are spiritual texts, I don't literally understand them. That helps you kind of escape that quagmire, but that's a, an important thing. Is this a spiritual text, or are we going to look at it through an absolutist historical narrative? You can do that. As an academic, that is, that's a fair position to take, but I don't think it's the only position to take, and that's what I'm offering. There's an alternative position here. Um, there's different kinds of things like um, the bringing life to clay birds and um, the delivery of uh, Abraham, the prophet Abraham. Um, yeah, these are, it's an interesting thing. How do these narratives come about? I would say, is that necessarily a bad thing? Is that a terrible thing to have a situation where you have a conglomerate approach? If we look at the Ark of the Covenant, for example, there's definitely Babylonian fusion and effusions within that. There, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that that's a part of humanity is that we dialogue and these things interconnect with each other. 
I don't think that that dismisses that someone could be a prophet. It just depends on your um, archetypal spiritual narrative. Um, yeah, um, the point on the stories of the caravan trader, um, that is a position one could take. I, I don't think you have to take that position. It's all about what narrative and archetypal uh, space you want to take on this. So that's one position one could take. There's definitely other positions too. Um, again, talking about the Persians, ceremonial washings. Again, I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily a problematic element. I think that's, that's okay if, that's, if there's imported elements um, and kind of a fusion of stuff. Self-serving revelations was another point that came up. Um, I had a response to this because you could take, there's a chapter in the Quran called Abasa, which is, he frowned, which is actually in that particular surah, if one wants to take that approach, he is, the prophet of Islam is actually, um, what's the word that I would use, is kind of um, challenged on his approach of who he is engaging with. So it's not like every verse is completely self-serving. So I think that, I don't know if we want to take that kind of absolute approach because there is a response for that. Um, so that engages the self-serving elements, Zaid, um, and yes, the Aisha situation, which wasn't brought up, but that you could have that too, I guess. Um, and the Maria the Copt, yes. And the eternal speech. I think this just depends on people's theology. What is the theology people want to take? I don't think you have to take this absolutist Islamic approach where you have to say, this is absolute. Um, and I think that that's unfortunately a space that folks take. They say, well, this is absolutely the way it has to be. And what it is, is I think it's a tribalistic response. It makes people say, I am the chosen one, I'm the best, I'm the greatest. And they've, again, as I had said before, re reinforcing and reifying that original position, people want to be special. They want to be chosen. And I think that that type of narrative allows them to be chosen and special. They haven't have a lot of these folks who say that the Torah is corrupt. Have they actually read the Torah? No. Have they, did they learn Hebrew? Did they take time to learn ancient Greek? No, they didn't learn any of these things. They didn't do the work. But they want to do it because they were born in the right family at the right time in the right space. So I don't know if I would say that that condemns the prophet of Islam. I think this is just one interpretation of who the prophet of Islam may be. Um, yeah, so I mentioned Surah Basa. Morally convenient, yes, okay. The so then going to the demonic approach. This is an interesting question. So a lot of folks, when they are faced with like an overwhelming presence, it, that, could be some, that could be an explanation, is that one could say, wow, this was, um, this is something that it, it's scary, it's terrifying. We don't really know because it's beyond our pay grade. It's beyond our position to know if what, what this spiritual force is, but people have their feelings. It could be even completely imaginary. We don't know. There's not some perfect space that we can prove that position. Um, let's see. Polytheism, okay. Yeah, indigenous traditions, yes, that was engaged too about the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the black magic. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. We, we use these terms to explain things that we don't understand. We use things like black magic. We use things like these kinds of concepts. And I think even like if you're reading poetry or a spiritual kind of text, um, 
you might have certain language that's used from a certain time that has a certain kind of context and understanding. I don't think that, that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and dismiss all of that within that kind of space. So I think it's interesting, how would we define what a false prophet is from a true prophet? I think that's an interesting question in and of itself. Um, yeah, and going back to the Hebrew prophets, I think going, uh, going with that kind of space, it, it is a consistent situation. Um, and that's what we can see with that particular situation. Yeah, thank you. Very much. Appreciate that. So we're going to kick it over to David his 12-minute rebuttal as well. Thanks, David. The floor is yours. Uh, thank you, James. And Isa, uh, Isa began there by um, distinguishing his approach from... Uh, <laughs> it's funny that he actually used, used the word doppelgangist. Uh, <laughs> I'm starting to like you uh, a lot, Isa. <laughs> But um, uh, and, and, he, and he pointed out some, some of the differences between uh, some of the approaches of the, the Dawa guys in recent years and, and his approach. And uh, he pointed out with the, you know, very popular to be using scientific arguments for the Quran. The Quran supposedly came, uh, had all these scientific miracles. This argument came out in the 1970s and uh, then was developed in the 80s and the 90s and uh, was used on people who weren't actually looking up the passages. When you actually looked up the passages, uh, the argument started to fall apart. And now uh, even people like Ali Dawa are saying that the argument was, has been debunked and he calls it absolute nonsense. Uh, but, but I would actually uh, agree with Isa, uh, uh, Isa that you shouldn't, this probably shouldn't have been an argument to begin with. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's one thing where I would actually, I mean, I, I assume Isa would have the same perspective here. Uh, if he's interpreting this as a, for the, the spiritual message. When I was looking at some of the um, scientific miracles arguments from the Dawa guys, it was, it was almost like they're ruining the passage because some of the passages had an important meaning that, get that gets completely derailed once you start looking for the scientific accuracy. So uh, in, in the, the famous passage about embryology, um, you had the Dawa guys, they try to show that this lines up with modern embryology. It doesn't. It doesn't at all. But when you take it down that road and start examining it scientifically, you miss the entire point of the passage. The point of the passage was, it was about people who deny the resurrection. It says, you deny the resurrection because you don't think God can put you together again after you die? Do you know how God put you together at the beginning, at first? And so the point was, it's pretty amazing that you were put together at all. You shouldn't find it too uh, unbelievable that God could put you together again. So it was a perfectly uh, interesting point, which, which any theist uh, who believes in a, a resurrection could agree with, and it gets completely derailed by uh, look, taking it down the scientific route. Um, so uh, Isa has um, uh, given us his thoughts for believing in Muhammad. I've given uh, several reasons for why I don't believe Muhammad is a prophet. And uh, let's go through some of these. So, uh, yeah, I broke it down into sort of three categories. And keep in mind, it's not a person falls into one category or the other. You could, be, you could truly get some sort of revelation from God over here, and yet you could be talking just from your own mind over there. Something mm. is, uh, is looking at the revelations. What's the, what, what does the uh, actual origin uh, look like? So I, be, I began by looking at Muhammad's teachings to see whether they might have a human origin. And I said that we have many good reasons to think that the, the true origin of Islam was the mind of a 7th century Arabian man. Uh, Isa, in response to the, the points I brought up, so I brought up that 
the sources of Islam, you find all the building blocks of Islam in the surrounding uh, culture of Muhammad. Uh, lots of competing groups. Islam sort of blends a lot of them together. Uh, I pointed out that there are self-serving revelations and uh, a lot of silly teachings. I wouldn't think the silly teachings are really a problem, except for Muhammad claiming that his, uh, his uh, saying has some sort of supernatural eloquence. Uh, Isa points out that I'm relying primarily on the Sunni tradition. That is correct. And uh, I am open to other views, and I'm more open to other views on Islam than I used to be. My, my thoughts generally come from Sunni sources. I used to think it's obvious that Sunnis have the most correct Islamic position. Uh, I mean, you're talking 80 to 90 percent of Muslims in the world are Sunni Muslims, and it's why did Islam make this? Why did Islam have this big impact there? Uh, why is that the dominant position? Uh, whereas in, in more recently, I've come to think that the Sunni sources are very, very problematic in a lot of ways. They're extremely late. Um, so the, the main sources, Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, you're talking two centuries after the time of Muhammad. I uh, used to think that, you know, they probably, they're probably doing a good job retaining that information for a couple centuries. Uh, the closer you look, you find out they're inventing stuff left and right back then. The, the difficult methodology, trying to figure out what you can take seriously and what you shouldn't uh, take seriously. But uh, just to give everyone an idea for anyone who's new to this, uh, you have people who are completely skeptical of the Sunni sources. In other words, on a scale of 1 to 10, they, they have, their skepticism is 10. They don't trust, they don't trust any of it. Um, if you go back like two years, go back two years, I would have been like a, a 5 or a 6 five or a six on how skeptical I am of these sources, so I believe there's a lot of reliable information and some made-up stuff. Uh, but recently, recently, um, this, is, this is Joshua Little, who believed that he was defending Islam from Islamophobes by attacking some of the information in Sunni sources to show that we shouldn't be using it because it's not actually reliable. But uh, in, in his, doctor, his Oxford doctoral dissertation, he breaks down the uh, Sunni historical methodology and is way, way, way worse and sloppier and more deceptive than I was aware of. So now I'm, uh, I'm significantly more open, mm. open to uh, Shia interpretations, um, Sufi interpretations, and so on, because the sources are way worse and way weaker than I'm aware of. So a lot of what I'm saying, a lot of what I'm saying comes from Sunni sources. And so, again, this would apply to the vast majority of Muslims who believe in those sources, but uh, there is plenty of room for disagreement among Muslims, and so some, if you're, if you're a minority Muslim, or Shia, or, or, uh, or Sufi, or something like that, you might be able to just reject a lot of what I'm saying and say, hey, that's, that's Sunni, and don't. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of this will only apply to Sunnis. Um, Isa says that, you know, we should be reading the Quran as a spiritual text, not, as, not just looking at it as a historical narrative, and there, there's, that makes some sense, but there's another problem. If we're going to examine Muhammad as a prophet, then we have to know who we're examining, right? If we take a copy of the Quran and say, is this from God? It seems like we should know about the person who brought it. Otherwise, we're just, we're just you know, we just got a book. It's just hanging out there in midair. Um, in other words, if you're, if you're trying to discern whether someone is a true prophet or a false prophet, you would probably want to look at his life and, uh, the rest of the things he said, and, and so on. And so I'm not quite sure you can treat something just as a kind of spiritual text without uh, examining Muhammad's life. But where are you going to examine Muhammad's life and say, is this a guy we should believe in? 
How are you even going to the Quran and having any clue what a lot of it is talking about? Lots of the Quran you cannot understand without going outside of the Quran. The Quran says that Muhammad is your pattern of conduct. The Quran doesn't say a whole lot about the life of Muhammad. You have to go outside of the Quran to see what your pattern of conduct is. There are all kinds of passages in the Quran. You can't, you can't understand what these passages are about without looking at the historical background. And so we kind of need these other sources, but we're kind of getting to part of the problem here. Most of what we would look at would be Sunni sources that come from two centuries after the events to try and understand what the Quran is even saying. And so if we're not taking those sources seriously, then it, it's not clear why we're going to have any clue what the Quran is talking about, some of the, uh, uh, even if we're just interpreting it spiritually. Um, so how else can we, I mean, how else we're going to examine uh, Muhammad's life if we're, we're not going to the sources, the only sources that we have on his life? Um, Isa says that the Quran drawing on apocryphal, sort of apocryphal sources or the surrounding uh, stories of his time wouldn't mean that the Quran is wrong. Uh, I, I actually agree with him here. I actually agree with him on this. It's, it's not the normal Muslim approach. The, a, a, a normal Dawah guy would be horrified at what, at what Isa just said. Uh, there are exceptions. Shabir Ali, I was in a debate with Shabir Ali, and I was bringing up some of these passages where we know exactly where the passage comes from. We know exactly the source where Muhammad was getting a story, and it's not an accurate source. It'll be a source from like the fifth century or something like that, and Muhammad tells the same story. So we look at that and say, hey, you got a problem here. Your prophet's plagiarizing false stories. Uh, but Shabir pointed out, and again, this would horrify the vast majority of especially Sunni Muslims. Shabir's response was, look, if, if someone's preaching or something like this, and, and he just, you know, the Marvel movie is out, and he says, hey, it's just like the Hulk when the Hulk does the, could you do that and be, you know, using that for a message to someone? At the end of the day, I say, I say yes. So I, don't, I wouldn't think it's a terrible, terrible problem, even if Muhammad is using uh, sort of apocryphal sources. Uh, it would be a problem for, for the way lots of Muslims interpret their sources. But if Isa is, uh, is saying, no, it's okay. It's okay to even use some of these apocryphal sources. Even if they are not correct, you can still use them for the message or something like that. I don't actually have a, a terrible problem with that. Um, so we've got the, the issue of the sources of Islam. If, if, if we don't actually uh, have a terrible problem of Muhammad um, getting his information from the sources that are popular at his time, whether they're right or wrong, um, okay, we're good. Uh, as far as the self-serving revelations, uh, Isa's main response here was that not everything in the Muslim sources was self-serving towards Muhammad. And that's correct, too. There were times when Allah would rebuke Muhammad and, and tell Muhammad to repent and tell him to ask forgiveness of his sins. And uh, in the Hadith, it says that Muhammad would ask forgiveness of his sins 70 times a day. So he's obviously doing something that he thinks is wrong. So he's not receiving revelations to justify everything. But I don't think this is enough to, um, to deal with some of these issues. In other words, to say that someone is receiving self-serving revelations, you don't have to say that every single revelation he ever received is self-serving. Like Some of these really, really look problematic. Again, Muhammad swears an oath by Allah. I will not have sex with that, I will not have sex with that slave girl again because I disrespected you, my wives, by doing this in your bed. So uh, in a sort of punishment to myself, I, I'm not going to have sex with my slave girl again. Are we good? Yeah, 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 we're good. Hey, wait a minute, I got a revelation. It's in the Quran, Surah 66, verses 1 to 2. Allah says, hey, I didn't tell you to make that oath. It tells him it's okay to break it. That looks really, really suspicious. And, and again, this, 
This wouldn't be a, a complete deal breaker. You could have a problem with this and then have that problem outweighed by other considerations. In other words, you could have that kind of problem and then Muhammad does this awesome miracle that sort of confirms that he's a true prophet, something like that. So these are things that could be outweighed. My question is, what is it that outweighs these problems? Because I look and I see problem after problem after problem after problem after problem, and I never see the evidence that outweighs the, the problem. And so we've got the spiritual issues. We've got Muhammad thinking that he was demon-possessed. To be fair, I do think there are ways around that sort of thing. If Muhammad's just freaked out and he doesn't know what's happening, he could interpret this as him being possessed and just be wrong and then find out later. Uh, so you have things like that. The satanic verses, not so much, because the, the crux of that story is that Muhammad actually couldn't tell the difference between a revelation from God and a revelation from Satan. That should be pretty scary. Hey, I'm a prophet. By the way, I can't tell the difference between a revelation from God and a revelation from Satan. Okay, then I, I don't know how to distinguish you between a, whether you're a, a true prophet or a false prophet. Uh, the black magic and so on. Um, again, you, you, could, you could say, you know, with the black magic that Muhammad is just, uh, you know, Muhammad doesn't know what's going on and he thinks it's black magic. You could explain, you could work around these things, but the, the core problem still remains. You've got all of these problems. The question is, what, what is there to offset these problems and make us think that we should believe in Muhammad as a true prophet? I still haven't seen it. All right, we're going to kick it into an eight-minute rebuttal period for Isa. So, Isa, floor is yours. Wow. Um, so I have to thank David. He, we had a, we we're definitely affirmed on many different spaces. Um, yeah, I, I definitely take a different approach than the usual approach. But I think every approach is not going to be perfect. There are going to be flaws in every kind of approach to this. As I had brought up before, folks will say, well, the Sunni, traditional Sunni approach is the best approach. But then what do you do about the Torah and the Gospels? You can't just utterly reject them and then say in your creed that you believe in the books. That, it just doesn't work. You're, you're just, these, the puzzle's not coming together. So everybody's going to have their flaws. And so he brought up uh, the spiritual element uh, within the situation. How can the prophet, like who is this prophet, like from reading this text? And I mean, this, this is a question. And it's interesting because I have a certain way of looking at this. I... Um, I took a class on uh, Hebrew prophets, um, and I did, and judges, and I did a whole paper, if anybody wants to read it, I published it in academia.edu. It's about Shamgar Ben-Anath, very interesting figure within the Shoftim, or the judges. We don't really even know much about these judges in general. There's so little that's said, and basically only one that you see in a lot of, like, if you go to your, like, Christian movies and stuff, uh, you see Samson, or Shimshon, that's the only figure that you actually see, but there are several other figures. But this character, Shamgar, only has two paragraphs in the entire corpus that talks about him. And who is this character? How do we figure out who he is, what he is, what's he, what he's about? These questions are all there, and that's what I kind of explore in my text. I'm like, who is Shamgar Ben-Anath? Who is this person? I don't know. Um, and I've got no problem with that. <laughs> um, but Shamgar Ben-Anath uh, has two paragraphs, and if we don't know much about who the prophet of Islam is, I don't know if that's a problematic space. I don't know if that actually hurts our understanding, our engagement. I think each person has their own engagement with spirituality and religion. If you're a Christian, you have your own engagement. And many people have different engagements with their faith, or if they don't have faith. If you're a secular humanist, you're going to have 
different positions within secular humanism, and I think that's okay. I, I take the position of pluralism and perennialism. I think that people can have different points of view and different perspectives, and they can coexist. I do think it's difficult when you have people who uh, take the position of essentialism, and I think that that is definitely what uh, Dr. Wood is engaging, is these essentialistic positions, where people are like, well, this is the truth. This is right. I am right. They've never explored anything else. They don't know anything else, but they know their little narrative. They know their story, and they keep pushing that story, and they want to be special and better than other people, as I've stated before. And um, that's the perspective. I don't, I don't think things that are complex and controversial are necessarily bad things. And it's interesting, if we literally took the Hebrew scriptures at face value, there's a lot of controversial things that we may see there. You know, we can see, you know, the story of David, funny enough, talking about David, uh, King David, Prophet David, depending on your faith tradition. It's an intense story. It's not an easy story. Um, but there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from it. And that's how I think we should look at scriptures. You know, there's a term in German, Heilsgeschichte, which is like a salvation history. Um, and I would take it in my own interpretation of a sacred history. And it can, you can have a sacred spiritual story. And I was thinking of the st narrative of Hercules. You have the Greco-Roman story of Hercules who has to go on these 12 trials. And it's pretty horrific how he even gets there. He kills his family, he goes in a rage. Then you have Disney's Hercules, very different characters, but a part of the same archetypal narrative. And people have different narratives. Is Disney Her Disney's Hercules false? I wouldn't say so. It's a different kind of telling. It's a different kind of narrative. So people have different narratives. And Muslims have different narratives on who the prophet of Islam is. You do have this narrative of someone who, you know, justifies, you know, what certain communities like the, I don't even want to say their, I'm not even going to say their names, paramilitary groups that do very bad things, um, you, know, uh, like, you know, that I would say do terror. Uh, they have their own narrative of the story. And if they're uh, presented with an alternative narrative, they're like, this, you know, that narrative is false. Everybody is trying to say whose narrative is true, whose story is correct. So what I'm offering is that there's a different narrative that can exist too. Um, when they had the story, the message, that movie, they had a certain kind of archetypal narrative of how they explored that story. And I don't think these stories are wrong. I don't think it's wrong to have alternative narratives. I think it's difficult when you take a hyper-essentialistic one. Excellent. Uh, are we moving in? Or David, right? All right, correct. All right, just double checking. All right, Dave, the floor is yours. Eight minutes on the floor. Good job. There. All right, so we're in our uh, we're wrapping up our, our second rebuttals here. Uh, let's see we're where we're at evidence wise. Um, I laid out a pretty simple case. Someone comes along claiming to be a prophet. Uh, there are a lot of people down through history making those kinds of claims and run into some really bad problems. You just believe anyone who comes along telling you that he's a prophet. You're basically begging to be a victim if you're going to side with anyone who claims to be a prophet. So uh, we need some sort of criteria in place for distinguishing a true prophet from a false prophet. And uh, fortunately, if you have a lot of information about someone, you can start to examine it. Didn't know anything about someone, he comes up and he says he's a prophet, you might not know what to believe. Uh, if you've uh, been following him for a while, or he's got an entire community around him that's been recording things that he's done, then you have, a, you have a better ways of examining him. And when we examine 
the life and teachings of Muhammad, some things uh, start standing out. So things like Muhammad receiving revelations that don't seem to have a purpose other than getting him out of some uh, moral condemnation at some particular time. People don't realize how, uh, how obvious this is in the Muslim sources. So I mentioned Muhammad's relationship with, uh, with Zainab. Muhammad had an adopted son, his adopted son named Zayed. Uh, Zayed has a wife, Zainab. Muhammad sees her, uh, he's attracted to her. Zayed eventually divorces Zainab so that Muhammad can marry her. This was considered uh, bad. It was considered bad because they didn't, they didn't draw a, a clear distinction between an adopted son and a regular son. So that was almost on the level of incest for the surrounding culture. You're taking your adopted wife's, I mean, your adopted son's wife. What in the world is going on here? I mentioned that Muhammad received Surah 33, verse 37, where Allah tells him, breaks it down to him. He says, Muhammad, you have to marry this woman. You have to. Why? Well, so that other men understand it's okay to, to marry the, the divorced wives of their own adopted son. Now notice, how many people struggle with that? How many, how many people down through history struggle? Should I marry the wife of my own adopted son or not? doesn't seem like a terribly important issue. But this is amplified because Muhammad also receives, in order to justify this relationship, he also receives uh, Surah, 3, Surah 33, verses 4 to 5, which, in order to completely justify it, abolishes adoption in Islam. So think about this. In, the, the final straw in justifying Muhammad's marriage to Zainab was to abolish adoption in Islam. Now, according to Surah 33, verse 37, why did Muhammad need to marry her? So that people would understand it's okay to marry the wives of their own adopted son. But then Muhammad also receives a revelation saying there is no more adoption. So it's a problem that will never arise again. So Allah is telling Muhammad, you have to marry this girl. Why? So that everyone understands it's okay to marry your, your, the wives of your, adopt, your adopted sons. And it's something that will never happen again, so it's completely pointless. Because there is no more adoption. So this is the sort of thing we're looking at here. And it just looks awfully suspicious. There would have to be some seriously good uh, evidence to outweigh this sort of thing. Uh, if you're, again, you can combine this with, uh, with Muhammad uh, breaking his oath, you could, you could combine it with all kinds of things, but this does seem to happen over and over and over again. So the question is, why should we be believing this guy? And I still haven't seen the reasons why we should be taking Muhammad seriously. Um, so we, we look at all the reasons we have for thinking that Muhammad's uh, revelations have a human origin, either from his surroundings or from his own desires and so on. Uh, again, these, these problems wouldn't be insurmountable. They could be offset by other factors. I'm just not aware of what these other factors are. Um, as far as us relying on later sources, and if we don't trust those, then you know, we, we wouldn't have a lot to go on. Uh, Isa brings up the issue of, of Shamgar in the Bible. We don't know a lot about him, but we can believe in him and believe the little bit that we know without knowing a lot of details. Well, that's true, but there's a pretty big difference between Shamgar and, and Muhammad. How, how much theology and practice in Christianity and Judaism and Islam relies on Shamgar? Uh, none. So you don't need to know a lot about it. If, if everything rested on this one guy, and he was, he was uh, proclaiming all sorts of things, and we knew nothing about him, that would kind of be a different, uh, a different story. In Islam, 
And it's, notice, in the Bible, you've got 66 books. You've got about 40 different authors. You have a, you have a cloud of, of witnesses of different situations. In the Quran, it's just Muhammad who's receiving these revelations. And so everything in Islam rides on Muhammad. So if you can't trust him, you, you kind of can't trust the, the whole thing. Um, Isa points out that, uh, you know, there, there are controversial things in the Hebrew scriptures. You've got, you know, things that King David did. Yeah, you do. You have, you have King David uh, having his buddy killed to cover up the uh, adulterous affair with uh, his wife. He's condemned for that. He's condemned for that in the Bible. If Muhammad had done things in the Quran that he's condemned for, it would have zero problem with that. I wouldn't even bring it up. Uh, from, from, a, from a Jewish perspective and a Christian perspective, we look at our prophets and we view them uh, very frequently as massive screw-ups that God uses anyway, in spite of how much they messed up. That's not the Islamic view of a prophet. At least in Sunni Islam, they have the doctrine of Ismat al-Anbiya. That's, that's Allah's protection of the prophets. They believe that a, a prophet is going to be protected from any sort of uh, committing any sort of major sin. And so that's one of the reasons you have all these things that Muhammad is doing, and they're constantly being justified by, by God rather than condemned. So Muhammad can even break his oath to Allah uh, he can do all kinds of things, and the Muslim sources keep justifying uh, what he did. So I would say very, very different, uh, different situations here. Um, Isa points out that he's okay with uh, different narratives and, and different interpretations of Islam. And yes, there are different interpretations of Islam. And I've mentioned, I've mentioned that I, I don't necessarily have a terrible uh, problem with, with some of these other interpretations. In fact, uh, at this point, at this point. Um, I'm finding some of the alternative interpretations of Islam much more attractive, but this doesn't mean I can ignore the fact that one particular interpretation of Islam keeps rising to the surface over and over and over again, and that the more Islam expands around the world, the more this interpretation of Islam uh, becomes dominant, to the point where Let's face it, if certain people in the world who want to have their way get their way, Isa's in trouble. Isa would be in trouble for things he said right here. He would be in massive trouble. There are people who would want to execute Isa for things he's, he's said during this debate, who would obviously want to execute uh, both of us for things we've said in this debate. Now, if that were some weird misunderstanding of Islam, that would, that would be one thing. There are people who misunderstand all kinds of things. But that kind of, that's, that's, that's increasingly becoming the, the most popular, most dominant position. It just seems to grow, keeps, keeps rising to the surface. And so when I'm looking at Islam, I'm kind of looking like there are two possibilities here. Either the position of these guys who would want to execute us both is what Islam actually teaches, or Islam just sounds like it teaches that, so much so that that's the position that keeps winning. And either way, this would seem like a, 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 pretty, a pretty serious problem for both. All right, we're going to kick it into 25 minutes open discussion, uh, and then we're going to go into Q&A. So 25 minutes open discussion. Have at our fault. What do you want to talk about, Issa? Um, anything, anything. Anything, you want to, anything okay. You want to talk well, about. I think it's really interesting. I wanted to talk about that execute uh, point. I think... About people who would want to execute you? Yes, okay. and execute us. I think that this has to do with the space of power dynamics. Um, and we're dealing with postmodernism and nationalism. I think we have to incorporate these things and tribalism. So people, like I was saying before in the debate, 
in our conversation, people think that they're the chosen one. They think that they're the best. So they say, well, my story's correct. So they're afraid. It's, it's a space of fear. You know, I work in therapy too. That's one of the fields, one of my many hats. But this is a space of fear. It's a fear response that they have. Does that mean what they're doing is truthful? Does that mean what they're right? They don't even know anything. Like, of course, oh, they're gonna execute me? Have they gone to like graduate school? Have they studied this stuff? No, they, they heard what someone else told them and they're a parrot. They repeat what other people tell them to repeat, you know, and doing self-exploration and actually engaging these things, it's a different space. And you're right, a lot of people don't even know anything about these sources because most of it's just in graduate school. You don't actually talk about this stuff. So I want, I was, I'm curious, what do you think about this kind of like bandwagoning thing? Just like, like, for example, I think in America, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christian. They said, I believe in Jesus, but I'm gonna enslave people, I'm gonna do all these horrible things. In my opinion, that has nothing to do with Jesus at all. And if we look at the text, I don't see that. But these people claimed that it was. So what, what, how would you address that particular? Uh, let, let me go back to what you were mentioning a sure. moment ago, because a moment ago it sounds like you were, you were more appealing to kind of human nature, right? So humans have a, actually now I'm thinking of a, thinking of George Orwell's review of Hitler's mind Kampf, mm. uh, just because uh, you could read that today and it sounds like he's talking about the, the world today. But anyway, uh, once upon a time, um, when Hitler started rising to power, George Orwell wrote a review of Hitler's Mein Kampf. And he starts talking about how uh, sort of modern liberal society, they tend to think that what people actually want is, you know, they want a little bit of reduction in, in, in how much they work, and they'd like a little bit more comfort, and like a little bit more pay, and like a little bit more uh, ease in life, and some more vacation days, and so on. And if you just give people what they want, that, that's what they want. And he says, well, people may want that sometimes, but people also want rallies and be marching with their flags and saying we're the correct ones and everyone else is wrong and want, uh, they, they want to be dominating and owning everyone, everyone around them. So he's pointing out that this is part of human nature and he, he, he argues that, even though, keep, keep in mind, he's condemning Hitler. He's blasting away at Hitler, but he points out that, uh, that fascism is psychologically sounder than what people in, in, uh, in, in Great Britain and so on were teaching at that time about what human beings really want. He's basically saying certain guys understand they want a, cr a crowd wants to rally around someone and uh, declare that they, are, that they have the correct position, everyone else has to be crushed. So you can see that whatever your position is, there are going to be people in your position who want to do that. We have to go out and destroy everyone else and refute everyone else and own everyone else and so on. Uh, so uh, taking that point, you could say that there are people in the Islamic uh, tradition who are like that. And so you've got the Dawah guys and the Dawah guy will stand up and say, uh, ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue us from all these people who are criticizing Islam. I'm going to destroy them all. And uh, people will rally around him. So, ah, you'd say, ah, that, that doesn't necessarily have to do a lot with Islam. The problem is, it does, it so that sounds exactly what I, I read in the Muslim source. If you, if you go through the life of Muhammad and you go through the Quran, it, it really looks like you have this three-step process where, uh, I'm, I'm, not in, I'm not inventing this, this is what Muslim commentators say. It's, I mean, I don't mind if, if you, it's fine. I, I like what he was saying, but it's, 
I don't mind. Uh, we don't need your input, James. We don't need your input. <laughs> it, it we're, having, we're having fine conversations. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It was yeah, my right. Bad yeah. I, I fed it in Yeah, let's go. I'll wrap it up. Um, <laughs> what was I talking? Oh, so anyway, so it really looks like in the Muslim sources what you have is this uh, when Muhammad was the persecuted prophet with like 100 to 200 followers in Mecca, the message there was peace and tolerance. Once he had a, a more supporters and it formed more alliances, then it changed to we'll fight, but only if someone else is doing something first. So it, the message changed to kind of defensive jihad. Then once he's the most powerful force in Arabia, then it changes again to one of offensive jihad, fight those who do not believe in Allah. Fight those who do not believe in Allah. There you're fighting people because of their beliefs. Have passages in the Quran. Uh, Surah 4, verse 65, says you have no real Islamic faith until you make Muhammad judge in all disputes that you have, and you have no resistance against any of his decisions. That's in the Quran. You can't say that's some later Sunni source. The Quran says you, you, you're not a real Muslim unless you have no resistance against any of Muhammad's decisions. Well, that leaves a big question. Where are you getting those decisions from? Sunnis have their sources. And so it's not just people who want to have some, you know, just human nature. People want to be on top. People want to, uh, to own everyone else. It seems to be built into the system. I think that's part of the reason why this, this keeps uh, rising. And I, and I totally hear that, and I validate and honor that position. I definitely think there are people who do take this story and narrative, because it's an easier story and narrative to take. It's an easier narrative and story to say, well, I have all these puzzles, pieces that fit together, thus it means this. I have these hadith, it fits. But if you really explore the hadith, there's difficulties that we face, because there's so much information. You did a series called Islamicize Me. It's a very interesting uh, satirical piece. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw it twice. I said, I'm going to make sure I saw the whole four hours. But um, it's, you know. And, and li little side note on that, uh, not to interrupt. But, well, please, uh, please. Little, little side note there. I got lots of messages from Shia Muslims saying, we love that series. Because <laughs> like, the vast majority was, was straight out of. Uh, it's right out of the Sunni story. sources. Yeah. And it's also, you took a very Salafi approach. Some Salafis really take that. And it's interesting because all of the violence that we see within the Islamic world are jihadist Salafis. Every single group, you're not going to see Sufis. You know, you might see the Hezbollah or the militant Shia, but like that's the unique standalone. But practically all of these paramilitary groups are all Salafi, Wahhabi groups. And they like to put the big dot on their head, this Abiba, they want to rub their head on the ground and they want to pull up their pants and grow a beard and say, you know, ah, key, I can have full wives. You know, like they, they like to play that kind of that game, but it's a narrative. It's a story that they tell. But the thing is, if they asked, if you asked them, like, do you know the Sufi story? Do you know who Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jelani is? Do you know who Sayyid Ahmed Rifai? Do you know any? They don't know any of these people. And you know the funny irony is? They quote this Sheikh named Ibn Taymiyyah all the time, the Salafis. Yeah, the granddaddy. But he's a Sufi. He was a Qadiri Sufi, and they don't even know that. They don't even know the guy was a Sufi. He was a part of a Sufi lodge. He just had very strong opinions, so they like that. They like that guy because it fits their story, but they don't know the whole thing about him. So, you know. Um, yeah, let me, let me bring up one sure, kind of issue please. along the lines of what, of what you're, you're saying here. So I mentioned Surah 4, verse 65 of the Quran, where Allah says, if you, that if you have real Islamic faith, if you, have, if you have any faith, you're going to submit to all of Muhammad's uh, you're going to submit to Muhammad as judge in all disputes, and you're going to have no resistance against any of his teachings. 
kind of combine that with Muhammad's warning about the sin of bid'ah. So is uh, coming up with your own interpretation. It's called innovation, right? Coming up with your own interpretation, your own way of doing things, something like that. Muhammad says that, that bid'ah or innovation is a one-way ticket to hell. Innovators go to hell. So this is, this is, hey, I'm coming up with my own interpretation of Islam or some teaching or something like that or my own way of doing it. Uh, you combine those things. So Surah 4, verse 65, that you can't have any resistance against any of Muhammad's decisions and the idea that innovation is, this, uh, is, is, is a ticket to hell. It's not, it's not saying that this should be the outcome, but the actual outcome historically seems to have been that Muslims get worried, hey, if I just know a little bit of something, if I just read the Quran on my own and maybe learn a little bit about the Quran, well, I'm probably going to make some mistakes and I'm probably going to be on the wrong side of issues. And therefore, I better not do, I, I, there are two options. Either learn it all or shut up and listen to what your, your scholar says. Those are the options. Either learn it all and become a scholar, in which case you'll know that you're not committing innovation or any of these other things, uh, and that you're not, you're not resisting Muhammad. Um, so either learn it all and become an expert, or shut up and listen to the expert. And so the, the tendency, and you, you can see this in the Dawah community, there will always be one, one Dawah leader, and then a group of followers around him who don't know anything except listen to the Dawah guy, right? And they stand around him. You know I'm right, right? right? It's always like that. There's the Dawah guy, and then there's his followers. His followers don't know anything except just what, what he tells them. But anyway, the, the, the point is, that seems like a problem that, are, that arises from within Islam. If you're, if you're being warned, hey, you can't have any resistance against Muhammad's teaching, and you can't come up with your own understanding, and therefore, notice, if you are just trying to interpret the Quran on your own, and you can't understand what the Quran is talking about without looking at the historical background, which you get from the commentators, or from the hadiths, or something like that, therefore you have to know all these sources to understand what the Quran is saying. Anyway, the point is, it seems like this situation is arising from Islam. I mean, I definitely think it's an opinion that we see within Islamic tradition, and the thing is, it's like I had mentioned before, it's like postmodernism. People are trying to kind of unify under a banner. But it's interesting, if, even if we take Sunni traditions, what does the Ahlul Sunnah wa Jama'ah say about this? They say there are 73 groups. So which group is right? I don't know. Um, what about um, the Khawarij? That's another group. They said these people who look like they're super Muslim, but they're actually bad people. You have these in the traditions too. So how about if these people don't even know if they're right? Like people are, are diving into an absolutist position, but they, even if they're taking their position, they fail. They fail their own position, you know? And it's the same thing with the literalistic approach. And I think you fairly uh, put uh, Hakakichu to task, and you put his feet to his, the fire, and you should have, where you said, is the Torah and the Gospels, um, are they corrupted? It's not in the teaching, but your literalistic teaching says it is in the teaching. So which one is it? And if you want to say that it's not in the teaching, you face a huge crisis of faith. Is God a deceiver? Is God incompetent? You face all of that by just taking that position because your literalism isn't working. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So we're going to, uh, just because we got Q&A at the end of this, sure. another debate coming up on top. Who went? I went first, so. 
No, no you're yeah. good. You're good, brother. Who would be first? Oh. You're using the European system. That's fine. Canada. Yeah, you betcha. Oh, okay, maybe they have it. Yeah. In America, it's whoever goes. I'm not you, sorry you, about you that. Stay the, you stay the same order throughout. And I noticed that in Europe, they, they reverse it. Whoever goes first also goes last. But I'm, I'm totally, totally fine with that. Um, all right, so uh, in, my, um, in my opening statement, I, I gave a, a quick outline of just, just my thinking on this issue. Uh, just because it, it seems like an a easy framework to keep in mind if someone's claiming to be a prophet, you could look, okay, is this guy saying he got a revelation from God? Does this, does this look like something that came from God, or this, this guy's getting something from his own mind? Is he, is he making everyone around him serve him and do things for him? If so, that looks suspicious. I, I would need some good evidence that this guy's actually a prophet. So you have issues like that. Uh, then you have specifically in the life of Muhammad, some of these uh, spiritual issues of, I mean, again, he, he delivered a revelation, then comes back, it promoted polytheism, and then he comes back and says, you know, I got tricked into, into delivering this revelation. Muhammad goes around, he's having delusional thoughts, false beliefs, it looks like he's going crazy, he comes back and says that he's a victim of black magic, a Jewish magician cast a spell on him. This looks awfully suspicious and so I look at this and I say, okay, what's the actual evidence that Muhammad uh, is a true prophet? What outweighs those things? Because there could be some. There could be something that out, outweighs this kind of problem. Uh, and I just haven't seen. I haven't seen any as far as the way I would normally look at these things, and the way most Muslims, uh, Christians, and so on would look at these issues. We'd be saying, okay, what? Why should we believe in this guy? There are tons of false prophets. Why should we believe that Muhammad's a prophet? Doesn't seem to be lining up with other things that he seems to be affirming and so I'm inclined to reject Muhammad as a as a as a prophet. Um, Isa there at the end um, of our discussion period brought up something that's interesting why it would have been interesting to uh, to discuss that a little bit maybe we'll discuss it uh, later because I actually I thought about using as a point in my opening statement what we call the Islamic dilemma namely that the that Allah and Muhammad in both the Quran and the Hadith, over and over and over again, affirm the inspiration and the preservation and the authority of the Jewish and Christian scriptures. And yet, um, your, your average Muslim today, almost every Muslim you'll ever run into will tell you the Torah and the Gospel have been corrupted. When that wasn't the original position, that's not what the Quran and the Hadith say. That's not what the first, the, the first century of Muslims said. They believed that Jews and Christians were misinterpreting and misrepresenting and misapplying and even covering up what their scriptures say, but not that their scriptures were corrupted. They didn't believe that, that the Jewish and Christian scriptures could be corrupted because they believe that Allah is protecting those scriptures as well. Eventually, people realize, wait a minute, the Quran doesn't line up with these, uh, with these other scriptures on certain doctrines. And so the conclusion was either, well, Muhammad got it wrong, or the scriptures have been corrupted. And by that time, you couldn't say, well, Muhammad was wrong because you get your head chopped off. So they had to start saying, well, the Bible's been corrupt. The Bible's been corrupt. And that's been the story. That's been the story for the vast majority of Muslims uh, down through the centuries. Uh, Isa makes a good point. If you are interpreting the Quran differently, and I'm not agreeing with him that that, that is the way to interpret the Quran, I'm pointing out that if you are interpreting the Quran a bit differently, not literalistically, um, not looking at it and looking for contradictions with the, with the earlier scriptures and so on, uh, but you're taking it as sort of a, a spiritual guide, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't have that problem. 
just you, that problem wouldn't arise. Wouldn't wouldn't bother you nearly as much. And bless you. Kind of, the, the issue I'm facing now is, as uh, as, as much as I like Isa, as much as I like Isa, and as much as I um, would agree with him on that issue. If you're reading the Quran, I mean, matter of fact, if you're just reading the Quran straightforwardly, you say, hey, it's affirming these other scriptures. Uh, as much as you could, could, you know, take that in a, in a spiritual, 20 seconds. in a spiritual sense and say, okay, you have different groups in different times and this spiritual, these are books, these books are spiritual guidance for, uh, for all these different groups. I don't know that that's actually open to Muslims, given what the Quran says. Themes. It seems to be claiming over and over again that it's clear and binding. So if the problems are going to arise because of that, I'm going to need some, uh, some better evidence that we should interpret it in this spiritual sense. Well, thank you. One thing I heard, I was looking at the chat, and it said that uh, Dr. Wood's mic isn't working. They said that there's a lot of bleep, so I want to make sure that he's being able to be heard. Sure. Um, okay. Well, I want to thank uh, my colleague here, my esteemed colleague. Um, so why should we take the Prophet of Islam as a spiritual figure and the Quran as a spiritual text? I think this is the way that I think is the best way to look at religion and spirituality and try to give the best benefit of the doubt to the text. I think when we put historical lenses and literalistic lenses we can kind of take away from the text. If that is our initiative, and if that is our goal, then, then that is actually something of use. Then you could do that, and that actually works. However, if we're trying to see, you know, the spirituality of the Muslim community and where Muslims, you know, present and where they're at, then it's a, you know, you're gonna have a whole diverse opinion pool of thought. But there is a, a, a narrative where we can see that the prophet of Islam is viewed as a kind of a noble person. There are alternative narratives that do not have that case. I was very transparent in the beginning. I'm not going to, you know, say anything. I'm not going to present an untruthful perspective of this. I'm going to try to do my best to be as truthful as I can. But we have a holistic kind of narrative that we need to look at. Going back to the beginning argument, I engage the space is, you know, the prophet of Islam connected to the Hebrew prophets. I think that still stands. I don't think, and I don't think Dr. Wood negates that, but he also makes a fair point that I will not negate either, where he said, well, what's the true prophet? Um, and I think that that is an interesting question at the end of the day. I can only show you, because you know, I am not the master of spirituality. I'm not the seraph. I'm not an angel that has the truth. So I'm not going to pretend to be that person. So I'm not going to give you the definitive truth that I know that, because I don't know that. And I think that that's a fraudulent position when someone does take that position. However, what I would say is we can have a case that the prophet of Islam can fit as a true prophet. That doesn't mean he has to be a true prophet, but he can fit that narrative. And that was the point that um, I was trying to engage today. And I think that that did come across. But I do think that we do need to engage all the other spaces that are there of how that may not suit other people's cases for that. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, it's, so it's important to, I think, at the end of looking at all of this, it's important to look at this as a spiritual text. The Quran is a spiritual text. See the Prophet Muhammad, um, 
Solosan as this protagonist within the, within this text. I don't think it really. I don't think we necessarily have to have a literalistic uh, position. I don't think that that's necessarily needed. Um, I don't think we need an absolutist position, and I think we can have a pluralistic position. So thank you very all. Thank you all for hearing us out. Excellent. All right, we're going to kick it into our Q&A. So I'm just going to stand up here, and I got this fancy-dancy mic because uh, we had a couple mic issues there. So let us know in the live chat if you're watching, if uh, you're hearing this well. Uh, so we're going to make a line just up to here, see where that outlet is, uh, just the front of your foot there if you want to ask a question. So if you want to make a line, head towards the back. And if you're in the front, well, look at that. You get very easy access. So I'm going to do a little pulling on that cord, and I will hold the mic just because it's a little strange. Okay, there are three issues that I wish David might have mentioned. One is that I've heard that Muhammad had the nickname the ear because every time he would hear something, and then magically it would appear in one of his revelations shortly after. Also, the uh, issue of his, his dying of saying my aorta is being cut. And the third thing that, that I was surprised you didn't mention was that he seemed to be very, very interested in personal gain, material gain. And having the extra wives is, is part of that whole realm. But, but he was very much about collecting stuff, stealing stuff. Thank um, you for your I'll, question. I'll say a few words about that, and then, then uh, he's going to respond. Um, as far as, uh, uh, so Muhammad being called the ear, yeah, that, that ties in with uh, a lot of um, the, uh, the claims that Muhammad is getting this stuff from people he's hearing. So he's even, that is a charge that's, leveled against him repeatedly in the Quran. The Quran is repeatedly responding to people who are saying, we've heard this before, we've heard this before, we've heard this before, he's just an, he's just an ear. That's in the Quran. Um, but that, that's the same point I was making. And so if, if Isa's perspective is actually it's, it's, it's okay, it's okay, or Shabir Ali, if, if it's okay that he's hearing these things and uh, incorporating them, that you would have a kind of issue like, wait a minute, this is supposedly the eternal speech of Allah, so how is this connecting? You have some, uh, you have some issues to bring out there. But yeah, we did have a discussion about that. I didn't, I didn't bring up that, that particular uh, verse, though. Uh, but there's that, and then with Muhammad dying and saying that he could feel his aorta being severed, uh, I, I'm guessing that Isa might not necessarily take that seriously because uh, the, the saying is in the Quran where Allah says that he would sever Muhammad's aorta if he were to fabricate revelations, but the, the sources saying that Muhammad was dying, claiming that he could feel his aorta being severed, that's from Sunni sources. I don't know if Isa would believe in those or not. What was the, what was the last? Personal gain. personal gain. Oh, for personal gain? Yeah, and th there there's actually, you could argue both ways in the Muslim sources. Yeah. There are, there are in the, even in the Sunni hadith, uh, saying that Muhammad was, was not financially well off. I mean, he was still borrowing stuff. Um, even up to his death. You could say the wives, and so that's part of the reason that he was never well off. You've got you know, nine wives at one time, and he's maintaining separate, separate uh, residences for all these wives, but uh, doesn't look like he was actually rich apart from that. Uh, looks like he had a pretty, uh, pretty modest, meager life apart from, apart from the wives. All right, your question. Yeah, I had a question. For oh, but uh, oh, uh, uh, did Issa want to respond? Uh, if it's stuff? okay, if yeah, I don't no, mind, yeah, sure. a, a small response on that. Actually, I think you covered most of it. Um, you, the, it was the ear. Yeah, I don't have a. It does. It's not like I don't think this is a huge problem. Um, the Kaibar situation. I think that that's what you were talking about the severing of the aorta. Um, 
that's a narrative um, that's a Sunni narrative. Um, I think if people want to believe that, fine. If they don't, you know, uh, this is the problem, I think, is when you take that, the ahadith literalistically true and literally true, you face a lot of problems because there's a lot of inconsistencies that don't really have a coherent narrative. And exactly, I was going to say the same point about the personal gain. It really just depends on how you look at it because if you read even these traditions, a lot of impoverishment, that there's not enough clothes, there's not, there, there's a lot of that if we even engage the Sunni tradition. So um, I think that could be contested, you know, that argument, but uh, yeah. So, so long story short, those, those would be problems for lots of people, perhaps most Muslims if they got brought up to, if you're looking at things differently, might not be. All right, thank you for that. Your question there? Yeah, Isi, you often bring up spiritual archetypes, and certain, sure. to me, these seems like psychological ar archetypes. Me, personally, I reject as a spiritual realm at all, so it doesn't appeal to me. So, um, and it also doesn't seem like you're saying they are true. So if you're seeing it's a narrative, to me, that's somebody's story of what they feel like the truth is. So how do you determine between if there, first of all, if there is a spiritual realm or spirituality at all versus which one's narrative is true? And that's a good question. This is hard because what is truth in this space? It's hard because we're dealing with the space of absolutes. Oh, you have something else you wanted to follow up? Okay. Um, well, when I say true, I mean, sure, how please. do I um, determine if it reflects reality? So when I look out, I can see stars. I can see the ground. I don't need to. I don't need to taste, touch, sense it, or I just need to have a way to distinguish it from pure fantasy and being objectively true. I don't know if pure fantasy is unreal, though. This is my. That would be my issue. Like I don't. I think that we all are, we're creating. We have narrative base, and we create stories. So I. I don't. I understand your point, but I. I it's hard because like. If I'm a person who's blind, I have that reality of blindness. I have a very different reality than someone who, you know, sees and has color and has all of these experiences and hearing and sight. Like, you know, if, if Dr. Wood and I take off our glasses, it's going to be very difficult. Our whole reality changes. Yeah, and Ryan, our whole reality changes and transforms, you know, than someone else who doesn't. And I think that that can uh, translate into the space of especially philosophy and theology. It's, it's a whole other ball game. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't wear glasses. Oh, you All don't? Right. <laughs> okay. I'm kidding. All right, next question. Thank you for being here. Uh, so I just actually wanted to hear what either of you guys thought the worst argument was from each other. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Really? Thanks. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> you may as well just said fight, fight. I, 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 it's, it's hard. I, I think, I think it, he was very, I think David was very fair, you know? I think he engaged the points and he totally reflected like when he brought up like the Sunni tradition he's like yeah this is a Sunni tradition so you know I think he was completely accountable and completely fair I have I have no like I can't say anything really is wrong uh, yeah I think it's already come up in the uh, in the Q&A a little bit but I think Isa just thinks about these things a lot if like whatever your perspective I think Isa's thinking is a lot different from the way the rest of us, whether atheist or Muslim or Christian or whatever, he's thinking, he's coming at this in a completely different, uh, in a completely different uh, mindset. And I think that's, that's the real, that's the difficulty that he's, it, it, almost kind of like he's speaking a different language in a sense that's going to be hard for people to 
to grasp. So I think that would be a one, your question. So Issa argued that every approach is flawed when trying to identify a profit. One assumes this means either confirm or denounce. If someone were running around uh, claiming to speak for me and represent my thoughts such that billions of people believed it, and I have the ability to correct this with people, I would do so. So since you guys seem to think that it hasn't happened, or perhaps it hasn't happened, why won't God take that completely effortless step to save us all this confusion? Wouldn't that be the perfect method to confirm or denounce any prophet? Thank you. Do you want to go first? Okay. Well, it's great to see you, Matt. Thank you for coming and asking a question. Um, I think it's, it really just depends on your theology of this situation. You could take a theology where you say, this is a, a trial and a test from a higher power that puts us into the space where we need to be tried to be better human beings. I think that's an explanation. Again, I am not the expert or master on this, but that, I think, gives a certain kind of explanatory power to an explanation that could be given. And this wouldn't be a, you can even kind of get a similar idea from the Quran itself. Uh, you know, you look at Surah 9, the final marching orders, where it's fight those who do not believe in Allah. You got that, but uh, earlier in Surah 5, for instance, uh, you get a different perspective where Allah claims that he gave different religious communities so that these would all compete with each other in, in good works. Uh, so Allah reveals Allah tells the Jews, hey, these are the revelations you have to judge by. Christians, you judge by your revelations. Muslims, judge by your revelations. You can all, uh, you can all compete with each other in, in good works and so on. And um, I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't believe in the Quran and so on, but uh, m my view is that, we're, I don't know, I just view it as we're, we're more, that it's not like we're pets, right? We're supposed to be, we're supposed to be figuring stuff out. We're supposed to be thinking about this. We're supposed to be wrestling with difficult uh, issues. And I don't know, we're not, we're not little kids who are just being, here's what you do and, and don't think about this stuff. All right, next question. Thanks for being here. Kind of have one for both of you um, because it seems to me that neither of you established a solid case. Um, Issa, you seem to say that it's possible to have multiple interpretations and imply that it's potentially even possible to derive wisdom from untruth, which, cool, I don't necessarily disagree. Um, multiple narratives are possible, sure, but this doesn't establish what's actually true. And I was wondering if that could be resolved. And for David, you seem to say that the prophet wasn't a very cool guy as one of the primary arguments, which, okay. Um, but that doesn't necessarily discredit a prophet because a prophet could be a really bad guy and still be receiving the word of God. Um, I'm wondering if it's an issue to demonstrate the falsehood of a prophet because that argument might be um, detracted by the fact that you seem to maintain that there is at least one true prophet out there. Thanks for the question. Uh, yeah, and I, I acknowledge, uh, uh, kind of dealt with this earlier, that Islam has a different view of prophets. You look in the Bible and you see people who are just massive screw-ups. And even people who are like, I don't, 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 don't tell me to go tell people this. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. Uh, or David, you know, having his, uh, having his uh, soldiers killed and so on. So we look at these guys as like messed up 
people that God can use anyway. Uh, in Islam, again, they have, they have a different doctrine. It's Allah's protection of the prophets, which originally meant that Allah is going to protect a prophet from persisting in any sort of major sin. So he's, back then, the doctrine meant that if you did something, Allah is going to rebuke you and bring you out of it. And so that's why, early on, it was standard to believe in the, the, that Muhammad revealed the satanic verses. They didn't have a problem with it because it fit the doctrine perfectly. It's Muhammad tells people to, uh, that they can pray to these pagan goddesses. Then Allah sends Gabriel to rebuke him. What are you doing? That Satan tricking you. And then God brings him out of it. So it fit. Later on, the doctrine came to mean that, that Allah is going to protect a prophet from committing any sort of major error. So the Islamic doctrine eventually became Allah is not going to let you do something really bad. So if you find, if you find things that are really bad in the life of Muhammad, it's like the, the, the system comes crumbling to the ground. Here are the really bad things, and Allah is affirming them, but you're not supposed to be doing that. This is supposed to be the greatest guy uh, in the world. So if they didn't hold that doctrine, and Allah wasn't affirming these various things, then yes, you could say, of course Muhammad's doing it. No. Of course he's doing all sorts of messages. Just stuff. so we don't forget, there was a first part for Isa there. Yes, uh, which is just largely how is it that you reconcile the fact that you seem to maintain that it's possible for multiple interpretations to exist? How do you figure out which of those is true? But See. even like kind of in response to that, sure it may be internally inconsistent, but it sound, doesn't sound like it's inconsistent for you specifically because you do seem to maintain that it's possible for a prophet to be a bad dude and still be receiving the word of God. And by the way, that's why that's why I pointed out that any of these that's why I pointed out that any of these issues could be could be outweighed by other other considerations. Like again, if Muhammad if there were some slam dunk argument for Muhammad, then I would say, okay, you got these problems over here, but there's this over there. Sure. All right. Next question. Uh, do you want me to answer the question? Or no, sorry, yes. I, I was the one that was adamant. I, no, 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 no problem. Uh, just to just to be fair, I want to make sure everybody who's coming up gets to be heard. Um, so the thing is, I, I kind of answered, I don't know the gentleman with the blue shirt uh, in the back, but he had asked a question similar to that. It's, this thing is, I'm, I'm doing the best with this concept of truth, especially from like a philosophical point of view. I don't know if we can deem an absolutist narrative. What we can do is we can say, here's a certain framework. Does this fit the framework? I think we can say, okay, there's a framework where this fits. So yeah, I, I would, I, it would be kind of foolish of me and I think it would be, I would be a liar if I go and say, I have an absolutist narrative that I can preach to you and tell you is the truth. It's wrong, and it would be wrong of me to do that, so. And I'm not gonna do that. Thank you so much, speakers, and uh, your question. Yep. In your introduction, you tried to show a distinction between a Rasul and a Nabi, and almost most Muslim scholars, like <coughs> Sheikh Usman Ibn Farooq, they would put the Rasul as having a higher authority over a Nabi, uh, do, you do, you, do you hold to that view that a Rasul has more authority than a Nabi? Oh, uh, that, that was my position. I actually was saying, I was taking the traditional position that the, the I was saying that the Nabi is a, is a minor prophet, like the Hebrew scriptures, and then the Rasul is like a major prophet. These are the ones who get the kitab, they get the books, you know, so, um, yeah. That, I, I, I'm, I'm saying that that would be a narrative that is taken for that, sure. Okay, and then, the Quran, uh, admittedly, and this is from uh, Sheikh Osman Ibn Farwa's uh, debate. He tried to put the prophets and then the Rasulus and then the Messiah. Uh, now, that, that has a big problem for Islam 
in that Rasulullah if they have a higher authority. Uh, and then the Nabi being derived from the Hebrew scripture and the, the Hebrew uh, narration. Um, and uh, uh, you've cl clarified that, that the Nabi, yes, that word, in fact, the word itself came from the Hebrew word. Sure. Uh, there was no Nabi uh, before uh, Muhammad in Arabia. So uh, how would you... How, well, that's an interesting life. question. So it depends on your, it's, it's, it's always about stories and narrative-based things. What is our story here? So the Islamic, you know, if we take like a traditional Islamic approach, if we're taking a Sunni approach, um, you have, uh, you like have folks like Saleh, Harun, uh, not Harun, I was to say Saleh, um, what's there? there's, there's a few others, but Saleh is supposed to be a, a Middle Eastern, like an Arabian prophet. But I don't even know if this concept of Arab even existed then. You know, like this concept came down the line. Like it's funny, people try to retcon stuff and try to make it always exist. Like Arab, this identity Arab always existed. It didn't. It's an Arabian identity means you're a fusion identity of multiple ethnicities brought together. So, um, yeah. So I would say to answer your question about um, were the, this concept of Navi or Nabi or Umbia, was, was were there Middle Eastern prophets? It's possible. It's potential that. The Islamic tradition kind of hints at some of these within the kind of corpus of the 25. So, yeah. All right, your question. I'm Ozian, by the way. But Ozian, as, pleasure. As, you too. Um, as a follow-up to my your last response to me, um, so my narrative of reality is that I, I know I do not believe that a God exists. So how do you differentiate? How, am I correct or are you correct? And if I am correct, or if you are correct and I'm wrong, what's the consequences? And this should be actually a good question for both of you. What are the consequences of me being wrong? I think that's a zero-sum game approach. I don't think that's the best way to look at this situation and saying, well, I have to be right or you have to be wrong. We can both be right. You, that's your perspective. That's the way you view the world. I don't think there's anything wrong with the way that you view the world. You know what I mean? Again, this is stuff that's beyond people's pay grade. We're talking about, you're talking about supernatural spiritual things. You, you can't prove that. You believe it, you have faith in it. So if you say, hey, I don't, this is not working for me, cool, cool beans, bro. Like, I'm with you, that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. All right, your question. Did yeah, you? so, oh, did David wanna respond? Oh, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, we, we, I just did a show about this with, uh, Mike Jones, inspiring philosophy, and uh, you have different perspectives. You have the standard, I believe you're gonna stand before God. I believe you're gonna stand before the Almighty, and so on. Uh, you have the traditional perspectives and so on. Uh, you run into a lot of other views um, in, the world, in the world of philosophy and so on. They, other other views start rising to the surface and so on, and it's just something that I haven't, I haven't, I normally don't take a firm position on something I haven't studied, and so I can say, hey, there's the, you know, the literalist interpretation, there's the metaphorical interpretation, there's the annihilationist interpretation, there's a purgatorial interpretation, there's a universalist interpretation, there's the, you could have a post-mortem, and I, I uh, yeah, I don't have, I, I'm not putting my stamp of approval on any particular that's all I can All right, your question. Yeah, so I was hearing David give a lot of different arguments 
that suggests that Muhammad wasn't a true prophet. And what I'm hearing from you basically is your rebuttal is it's just a different interpretation perhaps. And so like for Christians, you know, we are, our Jesus Christ is who we look up to. That's our, you know, made person, right? Who Christianity is all dependent upon. And there's a lot of like evidence historically that points to that direction. Um, you know, looking at the cultural evidence, um, looking at the testimonial evidence, those kinds of things. And, you know, testimony saying that Jesus performed miracles and those kinds of things. So my question is, is there anything in particular that Muhammad said that resonates with you that makes you believe that he's a true prophet? Is there some kind of specific evidence that you can point to other than, I guess, your interpretation of the writings that you've read? So it's an interesting position. And I think even if we, like all religions, have diversity, that's my thing, I'm a DEI guy, so I love diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, but uh, some people might not. But um, when we look at the, the kind of narratives, people have very different views on who Christ is for them in their life. Like you had people who did crusades, where you know my interpretation, if I were saying, hey, I'm a believer of Christ, I would take a pacifist position from the text if I were taking a literalistic textual position, that's the position I would take. Even with the sword verse, I would still take that because I wouldn't call that precedent. But if I took a literalistic point of view, I would say I would take more of a pacifistic approach, but people took a violent approach. That's the same thing with the Muslim Islamic tradition. You have different kinds of approaches in Islam. So I think in the approach of like Irfan or Tasawuf, these are like mystical approaches. There's a lot of focus on moral self-cultivation. And I think that type of thing can be a very good evidence for a practitioner within uh, Islam. All right, so we're gonna wrap up our Q&A there and uh, we're gonna give a virtual applause for the people tuning in online and a round of applause for our speakers here. Uh, thank you guys for coming out and having this discussion. We're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna start the next debate just a few minutes after the hour. Thank you. <laughs> I was gonna say this will go all oh, over the place. It was a pleasure, thank you so much. Uh, we'll have a little recess and we'll get back to it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.